Anyways, uh, good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, good to have you this morning. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Uh, special welcome as well to all the college students who might be coming back. Good to have you guys back. Uh, I was a college pastor for about seven or so years, and so college students, you guys hold a special spot in my heart, so really grateful for you. Looking forward to get to know you guys more and have you be a part of our church. If there's any ways that we can serve you or help you get connected, then we'd love to do that. So don't, don't hesitate to ask. Um, also, this morning, um, really excited. We're going to begin a brand new series this morning. We're going to be spending the whole fall studying through the book of Genesis. We're going to be really focusing on uh, chapters 1 through 11, so that first chunk of the book of Genesis. And over the course of this fall, that's where we're going to be uh, pretty much every week. And I've been really wanting to study this section of Scripture with you guys for a long time, and finally God worked it out. It just feels like the right time to do that uh, over the course of this fall here, but... The reason that I've been wanting to study this stuff with you is because I I think that Genesis as a whole, but especially these first few chapters in the book of Genesis, are incredibly foundational to our faith, but not in the ways that you might think. You see, I think when many people think about Genesis and why it's so important and foundational, they think it's because it answers the questions of how. The how questions, right? How was the world made? Where did it come from? What really happened? What about evolution and science and all that kind of stuff? Did God really create the earth in six days? And what about the dinosaurs? I mean, what happened to those things? Like, where, how does that fit in with everything, right? The questions that we all have about Genesis, that we, the reason why we think so often it's so important is because we think it answers the questions of how. How did creation happen? The beginnings of everything But as we begin our study in Genesis, and this morning in chapter 1, I'm going to pretty much bypass the question of how almost entirely. Not because I'm afraid to talk about that or because I don't think it's important. In fact, next week we're going to dig into a little bit of the nitty-gritty with some of that stuff. But, But we're going to be bypassing the how because I'm convinced that the purpose of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, is not to tell us about the how. It's not trying to answer the question of how the world was made. It's rather, it's trying to answer the far more important and the foundational questions of the who and the why the world was made. It's the who and the why of creation that Genesis 1 is trying to answer. See, Genesis is so incredibly foundational, not because it tells us about the how of creation, but because it tells us about the who and the why of creation. It tells us about God, and it tells us about what he is like. You see, the Bible is really all about God. All of the Bible is about revealing his nature and his character to us. And yes, that changes us. And yes, it does mean we live differently in light of that. But the point of it is not us. The point of the Bible is not what we are supposed to do. But rather, the point of the Bible is the revelation of the person and the character of God. And that changes everything about us. But it's the who questions and the why questions that really transform everything. I I really love listening to podcasts. Recently, I've been listening to uh, some true crime podcasts. Maybe you guys like true, po- true crime podcasts, like Serial or other ones. Anyways, there's one I've been listening to. But anyways, one of the questions that always gets talked about in a true crime podcast is the question of how, right? How did the crime happen? What, what was the order? Who was involved? Exactly what was like the, exactly the pattern and the timing of events? And everybody tries to narrow it down to the exact second and minute and all this kind of stuff. And the how questions are really interesting. Like the most of the majority of the episodes are about the how. But the question that really matters and the question that always leaves you satisfied or unsatisfied at the end of the series is did you get to the who? Did you get to who did it? And, and more importantly, did you get to the why? Why did that person do it? See, without the who and the why, the how, it doesn't really matter. 
The how doesn't matter without the who and the why. And the how is interesting. And it does matter, but when you understand the who and the why, you understand purpose. And that's what changes us. You see, the same is true of Genesis 1 and of creation. Now, don't hear me saying that asking about the how of creation is bad or that we shouldn't ask about the how of creation. Not at all. I'm not saying that. Rather, what I am saying is that we're going to miss the point. We're going to miss the point of Genesis if we're looking for the how. If that's what we're focused on, if that's what we're desperately trying to figure out, we're going to miss the bigger point. We're going to miss the thing that really matters most. We're going to miss what God is trying to show us about himself, what he's trying to reveal to us about who he is and what he is like. We're going to miss what really matters. And so the question is then, why am I so convinced that Genesis is not about the how but about the who? I think it has everything to do with the original audience and the purpose of the book. Like every book does, Genesis had an original audience. It had original purpose. It was written to a people in a place at a time for a reason. It's not just this ethereal thing that exists from somewhere, right? And oftentimes I think what happens is we overlook that when we're trying to read the Bible. We just assume that the purpose was to speak directly to us. And that we were the audience that was intended to read it. But that's just not the case. The, the Bible is for us. Don't get me wrong. The Bible is for us. But it's not to us. When you read a letter that's meant to somebody else and you read it for you, that kind of messes with that letter, doesn't it? Rather, we need to understand the who it was written to so we can understand why and how and all those other kinds of bigger questions. If we want to understand God's word well, we need to learn to do the hard work of digging into the passage to find out what it meant to the people it was written to so that we can think rightly about what it would mean to us. So the question then is when and why and to whom was Genesis written? Well, Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch, that's a fancy word for the first five books of the Bible, is written by a guy named Moses. In the last 50 years or so, there's been a lot of new opinions about this, but what makes the most sense is that Moses wrote it, and Jesus seemed to think that Moses wrote it, so I choose not to disagree with him. Um, the title of Genesis, it comes from the Latin word for generations, and Genesis contains a lot of genealogies. We'll get to some of those. In fact, I, I hope to convince you that they're actually really interesting instead of just the parts you skip over. But Genesis is not about trying to provide us with a list of genealogies, but they do show us who it was written to and who it was written for. It was written to the Israelites, for the Israelites. But, but the who of the book is only as important as you understand when it was written, the context of when it happened. When something is written plays a huge role in understanding a book as well. What was happening at the time helps us to understand the issues and the context that, that plays into it. What we know about the book of Genesis is that it was written by Moses or compiled by him for the Israelites while they were wandering around in the desert after they had escaped Egypt. That's really important for understanding, reading what's going on in Genesis. Put yourself in the Israelite shoes. You're an Israelite. You, had, you and your people have been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years, and miraculously you get brought out of that like in the most incredible ways possible. God brings your people out of slavery in Egypt. But you find yourself just wandering around the desert. <laughs> For like what feels like your entire life, just aimlessly forever. It just feels like you're going in circles forever and forever and forever. As you wander around the desert, you're beginning to lose hope and you're beginning to forget who, God, who the God you serve is and what he's like and you're beginning to forget even who you are. You see, you're not asking the questions that we ask when we read the book of Genesis. You're not asking the questions about science and the inner workings of how creation came about. You're asking the questions of who is this God who led us out into the desert? 
Is he powerful? Is he faithful? Is he good? Can I even trust him? That's the kind of questions that you're asking in the midst of that situation. That's the, that's the audience, that's the occasion, that's the purpose into which Genesis is written. And so God inspired Moses to write these words to remind his people about who he is and what he's like. And man, that is such good news for us. Because <laughs> I think we need to get reminded about who God is and what he's like all the time. You see, Genesis is God graciously and lovingly but powerfully reminding the Israelites, he's saying, this is who I am. This is what I am like. This is why you can trust me. Over and over, the message of Genesis is, it's just Genesis is just laying before us, it's just laying, this is our God. This is the God we worship. This is who he is. This is what he's like. This is what he has done. The message is come and see him. Come and worship him. Come and trust in him. You see, all the Bible is really about God. All the Bible is about revealing his nature and his character, as I've said. And that's especially true in the book of Genesis, especially true in the beginning. God is the point. He, in his word, is his revelation of himself to us. So as we study Genesis this fall, what we're not going to be looking for is the morals of the story. What we're going to be looking for is the creator. What we're looking for is the author of the stories in general. What does Genesis reveal about the creator, about who God is, about what he is like, and about what he has done? And trust me, when we read the Bible that way, it's going to be incredibly life-giving. So let's pray. We'll dive into our passage this morning, see if we can't uh, make some sense of what's going on here. Lord Jesus, we just come before you this morning just with humble hearts. God, we just say we need you. God, I, I, I need you if I'm going to be able to preach and teach rightly from your word. God, I need you if we're going to be able to honor you and live for you well. God, we need you to, I need you to fill me with your spirit so that I teach rightly from your word and that the words that I say have power and meaning. God, but we need you as well to empower us to listen and to hear. And we need you to give us moldable and shapeable hearts that would, that would be submitted to your word. And so, God, we, just, we say we need you and we ask that you would reveal yourself to us more and more through your word as we study it. We ask that it would be good news to our hearts, God, and we ask that you would just powerfully be at work in our lives and in our midst, God, for our good, but more than anything for your glory. We pray these things in your good name, God. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to be reading uh, Genesis 1 all the way through Genesis 2, verse 3, so buckle up this morning, right? Genesis 1, it's easy to find in your Bibles, by the way, if you got right. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. And so God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And and it was so. God called the dry ground land. And he gathered the waters and he he called them seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation and seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. And the land produced vegetation and plants bearing seed according to their kinds and the trees bearing fruit with their seed in accordance with their kinds. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening and there was morning on the third day. God said, let there be light in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and as days and as years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give the light on earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made the stars. God sent them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth, to govern the day and the night and separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And so God created the great creatures of the sea and everything with which the water teems and moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. a long passage. I lost my pot. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the living, the livestock, and the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness, so that we may that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. To all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And so God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished his work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The word of the Lord. Genesis is about revealing the creator. The point of Genesis is about revealing the creator In order to see that, what we're going to have to do is probably take a look at the passage in a little bit different way than we may be used to looking at it this morning. Instead of seeing Genesis 1 like a science textbook with formulas and examples and details to be studied, I think it's helpful, it's more helpful, I think, for us to think about Genesis 1 like a song. Songs have repetition, songs have lyricism, they have beauty in them. They're trying to get across an idea, not just with the words that they use, but with how they put those words together. When you listen to a song, you don't hard press all of the details, looking for every technical, specific meaning in every single word. When ACDC's Thunderstruck comes on the radio and you hear the line, you've been thunderstruck, you don't think, I don't know if you guys realize this, but that's not really a thing. Uh, do you understand how thunder works? You don't get struck by thunder. You get struck by lightning. It's just like not a thing. Guys, like, come on now. No, you realize that they're talking about something else, right? You're not hard-pressing. You realize that they're talking about like a, this, this impactful situation in somebody's life. Or maybe you're not really thinking about anything. You're just like meadily meadling away right on your air guitar in your car, right? 
Or maybe when the one and only Adele, she talks about, sings about setting fire to the rain, right? You're not thinking, like, Adele, are we talking napalm here? I mean, otherwise you can't really set fire to the rain. It's not, like, even for you, Adele, like, it's not a thing, right? No, you're thinking, well, you probably have no idea what she's talking about, but you know it's sad, right? Because that's, every song she has is sad, right? You realize that the language is there. It's painting a picture for you of something. Likewise, when we look at Genesis 1 this morning, let's not hard-press every single word looking for the technical information in it. Now, I just want to be clear before we go on. What I am not saying is that Genesis is a metaphor. I'm not saying it's just this, this is beautiful language. It's not, I'm not saying that it's not talking about something that is real. I am not saying that it's not talking about something that is true or accurate. I'm just telling us that if, if we're, we look at it with this microscopic view, we're going to miss what it's about. We're going to miss the message of it. So instead, let's zoom out a little bit and take a look at the passage, what it's telling us about the who and the why of creation. Now, I know I said that we're going to be looking at the who and the why primarily, but there is one how question that Genesis just overtly addresses. And it's the how of creation that Genesis addresses is the how is God. Genesis over says, God created. The universe did not happen by accident. Nothing did not happen to nothing in order to bring about something. Verse 1, the beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word that's used for created there, it's used only ever in reference to God. And it's a word that talks about creating something out of nothing. You see, there's a different word that's used for us when we make a cake or when you make your bed. I don't know if you ever do that, I don't. But theoretically, if you did make your bed, right? That word that would get used for make, create, it's a different word when we do something. Because we make things out of something. And Genesis is saying God created everything and he created it out of nothing. Theologians refer to this as creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing. And this is really important and it's notably different than every other creation story, especially the the ancient Near Eastern creation stories of Babylon and Mesopotamia and all the ones in similar areas. You see, there are lots of similarities in these stories to, to Genesis and the creation stories of these cultures, but if you read them, they're actually pretty interesting, like wildly interesting if you actually go and read them. But one of the things that you'll see in every one is that Humanity and the world are brought about from something else. There are usually multiple gods or a universe that comes as a result of some cosmic battle. According to one myth, the human race arises from the blood of slain gods. In other, they are created from the remains of a dead sea monster. In these accounts, humans are typically an accident or an afterthought, or they're they're the result of bigger cosmic forces and don't really have anything to do with them. They're just a byproduct. Yet in Genesis, what we see is that everything starts with one God who creates everything out of nothing. This leads us to the first thing that we see Genesis 1 reveals to us about the God of creation, the who of creation, and it's that God is powerful. God speaks and creation comes into existence. Notice this. He does not labor or toil. There is no resistance to his word. There is no opposition to his word. He is not battling with anyone. He simply speaks and creation comes into existence. What's more than that? God does not need or rely on anyone or anything. There is no assistance with what he needs. There is no, there is no lack in him. There is no deficiency in him. He alone is supreme and he is supreme. Sufficient. Genesis is saying that there is one source of life, and it's God. There's no life apart from the power of His Word. Notice this 
don't know if you noticed this, but uh, there is light before there is the sun and the moon. God creates light before he creates the sun and the moon. Why do you think he does that? Because he is the one who is the source of light. He is the one who is the source of goodness. Again, it's a picture that all life comes from God. He's the source. He's the sustainer. He alone gives life. That's the same picture we get in Revelation, that heaven is illuminated by God himself in his radiance and in his glory and in his goodness. You see, Genesis was written into a culture that the, the, the Israelites had been hundreds of years in a culture that worshipped the God that was the sun. And Genesis is saying the sun is not a God. It is simply a created thing. It's not even the great light, it's just a greater light. It's created by the great one, the ultimate one, the creator of all things. You see, the God of Genesis is powerful, over supremely powerful. But Genesis doesn't reveal that just God is powerful, it reveals that he is present God's not far off, he is not distant, he is not uninvolved in creation, he is intimately involved. And verse 2 says, the Spirit of God, it was hovering over the waters. The word hover there, it, it's only, it, whenever it's used, it's always talked about a mother bird who is hovering over her young. The word hover here, it refers to this mother bird who's, who's hovering over her young, she's caring for them. And the picture is one of God who is close and intimate, not vague spiritual force, not just a mist that's kind of ethereally hovering, but one who is intimately, caringly involved in his creation. And God is intimately involved in creation, but he is carefully bringing it about as well. The climax of Genesis 1 is the creation of humankind. But did you notice the setup? It was just a few years ago that someone pointed this out to me. Look at the structure here. There's something I hadn't noticed. The first, three dation, the first three days of creation are about creating habitats. And the second three days of creation are about filling the habitats with inhabitants. Day one, God creates the light and he separates it from the darkness. And on day four, he fills the day and the night with the sun and the moon and the stars. Day two, God creates the ocean and the skies. And on day five, he fills them with fish and the sky with birds. On day three, God creates the land and the plants. And on day six, God fills it with the, land, with the animals and with people. You see, God is thoughtful. He is caring. He is deliberate. He is not haphazard or unprepared. The passage paints a picture of God who is orderly in his care and his concern. My wife, she makes people feel really welcome at our home because she plans for people. And people feel welcomed at our house because we have what we need when they're there. When people stay overnight, there's this like, little guest basket with toothbrushes in it and snacks, right? And some Gatorades sticking on the corner, right? And, and people feel welcomed when they come to our house because she plans and prepares. People feel nervous when I'm in charge, right? Because I don't plan very well, right? You see, so Genesis is telling us about the God of creation who is powerfully and intimately involved in his creation, he is careful and ordered in his creation. But more than that, what he creates is beautiful and it is good. The Psalms tell us that the heavens, they declare the glory of God. The creation itself reveals something about the creator. The creation shows us that God is beautiful and that he is creative. Just think about it. Over and over in the passage, God says that he creates them according to their various kinds. Just think about the magnitude of the number of, of creatures in our world and of plants, and of all the things that are there. When you think about the sunset, or when you think about color, we see the beauty of creation. When you think about flavor, right? Things taste the way they taste, because God created them that way. 
When you think about music and sound, you see how that's beautiful to our ears. That's something God created. He designed the world to work in that way. When you touch something, when you, in the summer, after it has been snowy for months, and you walk out on the ground in the summer with bare feet and you feel the soft grass underneath your feet, what that feels like is God's design for it. You see, the world that we live in is enormously beautiful. It is so widely diverse. We don't need any of these things. We don't need color. We don't need flavor. We do not need touch. But God created these things so that we might marvel at and enjoy him and the beauty that he creates. You see, the magnitude of the universe, it makes either your brain implode or explode, one or the other, right? But in either case, what it does is it brings us a sense of awe and of wonder. You see, God is beautiful and he's creative, but more than that, he blesses. Three times in our passage, it says that, that God blesses. Over 80 times in Genesis, God tells us that God blesses. You see, God is a God who blesses. He loves to give good gifts. He is generous and not stingy. He is overflowing and abounding, filling every part of our lacking. You see, creation, his creation is a blessing that is given to us to enjoy and to steward. Furthermore, Genesis 1 tells us that God didn't just create everything. No, it says that he enjoys and delights in what he made. What do you think the passage is talking about when it says over and over that God said it was good? I don't know. I went to a college with a bunch of engineers, and uh, usually when they read that, it was about evaluating what was going on, right? You finish your assignment, you finish your technical process, and you're like, it's good. Finished. Done, right? Stamp your mark of approval on that, right? But that's not what's going on here. Remember, Genesis is a song. God's not just approving what's happening in Genesis. No, he is enjoying it. He is delighting in it. When you sip a glass of sweet tea on a summer afternoon, you say, man, that's good. When you have a delicious home-cooked meal after a couple of months of college food, what do you say? You say, man, that is good. When you go to a great concert or when you watch a great movie, you say, man, that was, that was really good. What are you doing? You're not just approving of it. Marked, good, stamped, finished. No, what are you doing? You are enjoying it. That's what's happening over and over when God says, it is good of creation. God is delighting in creation. He is enjoying it. He's saying, I have made you perfect. You are beautiful. You are just as I intended and designed you to be. I am pleased with you. I am satisfied with you. I enjoy you. Now, we mess all of that up in chapter 3 with sin, and we'll get to that. But we see is that the original design of creation, it was good. It was good. There's so much more here this morning that I would love to get to, but we just don't have time for all of it. But there's one last thing that I'd love for us to highlight this morning as we talk about the who that the creation reveals. And this is really important because it has everything to do with the why. In verse 26, God says, Let us make mankind in our image. And you're thinking, who is the us? Like, is there some schizophrenia going on here? Or what is happening, right? Is it the angels? What, who is God talking to? Isaiah 44, it tells us that when God stretched out the heavens all by himself, he did it with no one else. No one was asking him. He did not take counsel with anyone, not the angels, nobody. 
And so what we see from the very first chapter of Genesis, you see the evidence that God is a trinity, three persons in one. You have God the Father throughout in verse 1, he begins. You have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in verse 2, and you have the Word of God throughout. Why is the Word of God so powerful? Because the Word of God is a person. The Father's Word is the Son. John 1 tells us that Jesus is the Word of God. You see, the Trinity was there from the very beginning, and this is, might be, it's hard to wrap our minds about what that is. There's all, all these analogies that we use, and they all fall short, but what it means is that from his very essence, from the very beginning, God has existed in relationship and in community. God did not create us because he was lonely. God did not create us in this world because he needed something to serve him. God did not lack something. Creation is not a result from need or dependence. No, God created us, and he created this world out of abundance and out of love that's the part of his very nature you see god created us out of an overflow of his love tim keller says it this way from all eternity there was a circle of love the father and the son and the spirit and they were delighting in each other's being and they were praising each other's glory and they were enjoying each other's beauty and they were pouring love for each other out over and over day after day and one day they said let us expand the circle Let us expand the community. Let us create beings that could become part of that circle. You see, creation was not an inevitability. Creation was not an accident. Creation was God's choice to overflow with his abundance and invite others into it. You see, that's what we see in Genesis. We see God's love spilling out onto the canvas of creation. God invites us into his purposes and into his glory. You see, one of the greatest blessings is that God invites us to bear his image and to reflect his glory. Verse 26 says says that humanity is made in the image of God. That means we have dignity and value and worth, not because of what we do or what we accomplish, but because of the image that we bear. Because we bear God's image, every person in every nation for every reason in every circumstance has value and dignity and worth that is inherent and given, not because of what they have done or who they are, but because of whose image they have. That is wildly powerful, and that is wildly different than the world that we live in. We're going to spend four weeks talking about the significance of what it means to bear the image of God and the implications of what that looks like. But for now, it just suffices to say, that is incredible. The supreme king and author of creation invites creation into his glory, into participating in that. The magnitude of that is incredible. And it's a big deal because it has everything to do with the why of creation. You see, the how, it's really interesting, but the who and the why, they're transformative. You see, because they show us our identity and they show us our purpose. You see, if the why is an accident, if the why of creation is just, if it's just the the results of some cosmic battle, then we do not have value and worth as people. But if the why is that we've been created in the image of God, then the inherent value and dignity and worth and purpose of all people is built into everything of who we are. You see, the real questions that we're all asking are not just the how questions. We're asking the why. Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my identity? What am I doing? You see, and you get the answers to that question, not in the how of creation. You get them in the who. You get them in the who of creation and the why 
You see, all of the Bible, it's about God. It's meant to reveal him to us, to show us what he's like. And Genesis is no exception. You see, Genesis 1 was something that the Israelites wandering around in the desert that they really, really needed to hear. And it's something that we need to hear as well. You see, the truths we see in the passage about God are not just information for us. They should be life-giving good news for us. And for each of us, that's often in different ways. So the question for you this morning is, how is Genesis 1, how is the passage about creation, how is that good news to you? How do you need to be reminded about who God is and and what he is doing this morning? Maybe like the Israelites, you need to be reminded that God is powerful. Your situation or your circumstances are not too far gone. Your friend or your family member is not too far lost or too hard-hearted to respond to God. God is sovereign. He rules and he reigns. He has power and authority. And when he speaks, change happens. Nothing can resist his will or thwart his purposes. And so the invitation is to hope in him. The invitation is to trust in him. The invitation is to give yourself to him. But maybe you needed to hear this morning that God is not just powerful, but that he is present. He is not far off or distant or or uninvolved. He is near and intimately involved with his creation. Maybe like the Israelites, you feel like you're wandering around the desert feeling alone and forgotten and let down. And what you needed to hear this morning is that God, while he might feel far off, he is near. He is present. He is involved. He is not distant and ethereal. He is a mother bird who is hovering over his creation, caring for it. You need to hear this morning that God is near, that he is not far off, that he is not distant. Psalm 34, verse 17 through 18, it says this, The righteous crowd and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. But God is not just present. He is not just powerful and involved. The picture that Genesis 1 paints for us is that God goes before us. He is preparing a place for us, just as he prepared a habitat for the inhabitants. God is carefully and thoughtfully and orderly and preemptively preparing habitats for those who will live in them. He is preparing a place for his people. Isn't that exactly what the Israelites needed to hear wandering around in the desert? That God had prepared a place for them? that they just weren't wandering aimlessly with no end in sight, that there was something good that God was making for them, that he was calling them to follow him into? Don't you think that's what they needed to hear? In Genesis 1, it paints a picture of a God who is orderly, who's not just leading one step ahead, but he is leading completely ahead. He has prepared a place for his people. The same spirit that went before to prepare the world for us was going before to prepare a promised land for the Israelites. It's the same God that is going before you and I today out in front of us. He is out ahead of you in love for you, preparing a future for you. And so the invitation is to wake up with courage and with passion and with boldness and hope and joy in the midst of every circumstance. You see, you are not on your own. God is preparing a way for you. He has not forgotten you. He is out ahead of you. And maybe what you needed to hear this morning is that God alone is the source of life. Maybe you have been looking for life in all kinds of places, in your career, your spouse, or your kids. 
maybe you've been looking for life and success or in being accepted or being loved by friends or family or others. Maybe you've been looking for life and sexual intimacy or money or power or whatever it might be. And what you need to hear again this morning is that life only comes from one place. Life comes from the creator of all things. He's the one source. He is the author of life. And he's inviting you to run to him and to find life in him. He is the, the source. He has what you need. And he's saying, come run to me. I have the life you are looking for. I am the author of it. I am the source of it. I have what you need. God wants to give us living water so that we won't be thirsty again. Jesus in John 10 says, I have come that you would have life and have it to the full. So the invitation is to reject the empty wells we keep running to. To believe him, to put our hope in him, the author of life who knows where life comes from. Maybe this morning what you really need to be reminded of is it's not that God's the source of life or that he's powerful, but maybe you just need to be reminded that God is beautiful and that he is creative. Maybe like the Israelites, your, your life feels like a bit of a barren desert right now. You feel like you are just wandering around and wherever you look, it just feels like wasteland all around you. I bet you that's what the Israelites felt like. What they needed a reminder of is that God doesn't just create deserts. He creates lush gardens. He creates beauty and diversity. His creation is beautiful and it's good. Maybe this morning what you are pretty sure is that God is powerful, but you're not sure if he's actually good. What you need to be reminded of is that God's not just powerful, that he's good and that he blesses. Over and over and over in Genesis, God talks, Genesis talks about how God is a God who blesses. God is good. He loves to bless and give good gifts to his people. He is not a boss or an employer who just has authority. He is a loving father who cherishes his kids. I love to bless my kids. I love being generous to them. It gives me so much joy. That's what you need to hear about God this morning is that he's not just powerful, but that he's good and that he's generous and that he blesses. Maybe you needed to hear this morning that God invites creation to bear his image and to reflect his glory. You have been finding it hard to find your value or your identity or your worth. You've been looking for it in your performance or in acceptance by others or you feel overwhelmingly guilty by your mistakes or your failures. And what you need to hear this morning is that your value and your identity and your worth has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. It has everything to do with who God says you are and the fact that you as a person bear his image. Or maybe what you needed to hear this morning is that God doesn't just create, but that he delights in his creation of which you are a part We all need to hear that deep longing in our souls. We all have that desire to be called beautiful, to be seen as lovely. And Genesis 1 is God singing over his creation. He's singing a song of blessing and his enjoyment. Creation ends in Genesis 6 with, it is very good. You know what? Nature is singing that song back to God. Tim Keller, just so helpfully, he writes, he says this way, Why is it that when we look at creation, there is something that stirs within us? Why is creation so moving on the level of the soul? 
It is because creation is singing the praises of its creator. It is saying, my master says, I am good and beautiful, made just as he, in, he intended. I am cherished and loved and enjoyed and pleased with and satisfied in. And so creation willingly sings that song back to God. Keller, again, he quotes C.S. Lewis here when he writes in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, we want to be united with the beauty that we see in nature, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That's why all the poets, they tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into the human soul, but it can't. You see, we cannot mingle with the splendors that we see, but all the leaves and pages of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that one day we will. One day it will not always be that way. One day, God willing, we will get in. What is Keller? What is C.S. Lewis? What are they saying? They're saying that we want to sing that song that nature is singing back to its creator, but we can't or we don't know how. Genesis 3, which we'll get to in a few weeks, it says that the reason why we can't do that is because of sin. You see, we worship the creation instead of the creator. We look for life and satisfaction and fulfillment in everything that it was never intended to be. We look for life in the gifts, not in the giver. And more than that, what we've all done is we've committed a mutinous rebellion because we have made ourselves the arbiter of what is good and true and right. We have made ourselves the one who decides what is best and what is good. And so what we have done is we have rejected the rightful rule of the creator of all things and we have all enthroned ourselves. But the good news is this, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put your hope and your trust in him to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you, to make you holy and pleasing with him, then you, because of Jesus, because of his person and because of his work, you are able to sing that song back to God. In Christ, you are loved and cherished and delighted in and satisfied with and beautiful you see, if you put your hope in Jesus, then what has happened for you is that on the cross, Jesus exchanged his perfectly lived life for your and mine, for our train-wrecked lives. And what happens is, is that you get his status, and we get his standing, and he takes on our punishment for our rebellious sin. We can't earn that, and we can't mess it up, and so what we get to do is we get to sing the song that creation is singing back to the Father. It says, I am good. I am what you have made me to be, not because of me, but because of you. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to shoot straight with you. You might not be feeling that way. You might not feel that way. And the invitation is to ask God to pour his spirit out into your heart so that you would know what he thinks about you. No amount of words that I can articulate to you can change that. The Bible says that God, by his spirit, pours his love into our hearts. If you know you have put your hope and your trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, then this is true of you. But you might need to ask God to remind you of it. You might need him to pour out his grace and his love into your heart so that you, what you feel is what is true. But for some of you this morning, you don't know yet, or you know, and you have not chosen to follow Jesus. And that dissonance that you feel when you look at creation but you can't quite get in, that joy that you feel when you revel in a sunset, but that quickly fades, that longing that you have in your heart for something greater, something bigger than yourself, that is God's gracious voice calling you in. It is his gracious voice in inviting you in. Seek him. Look for him. 
Ask him to reveal himself to you. I'm convinced that some of you are here this morning because God is longing to speak to your hearts. He wants to offer you the life that he has created. He is wanting to let you in on the song that creation is singing. He wants to give you the life that you have been searching for, but that you can only find in him. And so you have to ask him to do it. In our need and in our lack and in our insufficiency, we meet the creator of the universe who is all-sufficient. You see, and in communion, that's what we are remembering and celebrating. That in communion, God met our need. That we celebrate is that in our need and in our inadequacy that Jesus came that, so that we would have life. You see, the bread, as we take it, it reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life that we did not live. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that our foolish rebellion deserved. And what we're doing when we take communion is we are proclaiming the gospel. We are reminding ourselves and one another about who Jesus is and about all that he has done. Communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not save you. The Bible is clear that faith alone in the person and the work of Jesus changes our status and our standing with God. It's only through him that we have reconciliation. And so if you are here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, I just want you to hear this. I am so glad you are here. I am so glad you are here. But since communion is about celebrating and remembering the gospel and the relationship that we have with God because of that, I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion. I don't want you to feel like you need to do something with your actions that's not true of what you believe in your heart. Instead, my hope and prayer this morning is not just that you take communion, but that you would take hold of Jesus, who by faith makes you right with God. You see, communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. Ah, oh, he is what you need. And we as a church, we are here for you as well. Please know you are welcome here wherever you are at with whatever questions you have, with wherever you are in that journey of figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Just know you are welcome here. We would love to help you get to know Jesus. And if you've trusted Jesus and believed in his work on your behalf to make you right with God, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion this morning. There are two tables in the back, one on the left and one on the right. And you just go and you dip the bread in the juice and you take communion that way. No one will dismiss you. Just go as you see fit during our time of worship at the end here. And as you do, I would just invite you to talk with God. Be honest with him. Tell him where you are hurting or where you are struggling with unbelief. Ask him to show you who he is and what he's like. Ask him to meet you in your need and in your lack with his sufficiency. Confess your sin to him. Remember his grace and his mercy that's poured out to you on the cross and the person and the work of Jesus and worship him as you remember all that his creation reveals about him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for who you are and all that you have done. God, and we are so thankful for Genesis 1, which is a reminder to us about that. God, we need to remember, we need to be reminded about who you are. 
we need to remind you this reminder that you are powerful and not just one who has power, you are one who is supremely powerful. We need to be reminded of your creativity and of your beauty. We need to be reminded of your presence and of your goodness, God. We need to be reminded of your authority and your love. We need to be reminded, God, of your intentional and careful planning and your concern over creation. Jesus, we need to be reminded of those things just like the Israelites needed to be reminded of them. So God, we ask by your spirit, would you pour those truths into our heart? so that we might know you and love you and live for you. Jesus, we cannot do it on our own. We need you to do it for us. And so by your grace, would you show us the creator so that we might enjoy the creation and worship the creator, God, for our good and for your great and abiding glory in all things we pray. Amen.